Welcome to Seeds, a show where we talk with people who are living lives of purpose and doing amazing things that make a positive impact in our world. We take time to listen to them as they reflect on their life journeys and what has shaped them into who they are today and what motivates them to be involved in what they do. Well, kia ora, everyone, and welcome along to Seeds Podcast. I'm really glad you could join me as in this episode, we get the chance to speak with Mitch Shaw. Now, Mitch is one of the co-founders of Upstream, which is a really cool business, which also benefits charity. So he's going to tell us all about that. If the business model sounds intriguing, then I'm sure he would welcome a conversation so that you can find out more. But as with all Seeds episodes, we're not so interested in what a person does. We're interested in who they are. If you enjoy this episode, then don't forget, there's more than 347 others in the back catalog. So why not check some of them out as well? They're usually about an hour long, talking with an amazing person about what's shaped them. And you can find out a lot more about The Seeds Project at theseeds.nz. So make sure you check that out. And in advance notice that there is an online conference coming up in October, and that's going to be called The Seeds Impact Conference. I'll put a link to it in the show notes so that you can click and find out. I'm sure you're going to enjoy it. Now let's get straight into this conversation with Mitch. Well, it's a real pleasure to welcome Mitch Shaw, who's a co-founder and director of Upstream. Thanks for joining me. Yeah, no worries. I'm really glad to have you here because we've known each other a number of years. And in fact, I was um, involved with you thinking through Upstream, Mm. like what's it going to look like? What's it going to be? And this is like five years ago. So I'm really excited to have you here. Yeah, Um, cool. And just hearing that journey of starting a company which is actually doing things quite differently. Mm. So we're going to go into all of that, the detail of, Mm. you know, what led to this, what do you do? And then the amazing thing is you were just saying before we started recording, like there's tens of thousands of dollars which have now gone Mm. to support charities. Mm. So that's a really cool story. So Mm. we're going to get into that. (laughs) But I always like to start with a person because I'd like to understand, you know, your background and your essence and mm-hmm. what is it that's led you to be involved in Upstream. So the opening question, which I know you've listened before, yep. um, what was life like for you when you were, say, five years old? Five for me, born in Invercargill, so Southland. Okay. And um, got two sisters, so I was the only boy. Were you um, the oldest or youngest? I'm or? right in the middle, so the meat part of the sandwich, so older sister, younger sister. And life was pretty good, like, to be honest, as a five-year-old, I vividly remember thinking I've got a real solid family, mum and dad, life's, um, you know, um, I can remember going to kindergarten on my on dad's motorbike. I remember that, holding on. Right. Like, <laughs> reflecting now, I'm like, I'd never do that with my kids. Um <laughs> But yeah, were you so living like in a rural area, or was it in the town itself? No, nah, so we yeah, so we I don't know much about Invercargill, but we basically had um, moved up from uh, Invercargill to Christchurch. I think Dad needed some work; he was a builder, and moved when I was about two and a half years old. Okay. So um, Christchurch is really my home, yeah. But Southland is as where my roots are, yeah. But don't know much about that place, so yeah. um, we grew up in Hornby, and um, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. great. And so Southland, um, have you got like cousins and extended family who are still there, or is it more yeah. spread across the country? Or? It is definitely spread. Like um, some uh, one half of my um, cousins are uh, predominantly connected through Nelson, and then the other part, like aunties and uncles, and some are spread out um, further south, fairly um, Gore. 
Wanaka, yeah, Southland, yeah. that sort of thing. So a lot of the extended family is sort of um, sort of spread all over the place. But yeah, yeah, pretty South Island focused though. It sounds like definitely. <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't be able to tell you too many people I know in the North Island. Yeah, uh, that connected to family. So yeah, everyone's sort of sort of hovered around the South Island still. Yeah, oh, yeah. that's great. So then um, at age five, you're living in Hornby. Was mm. that right? And that's right. Yeah. What What was that like growing up there? I think I mean Hornby. Uh, lower socioeconomic area of Christchurch. Um, he again, I remember this picture of just feeling like solid family. Um, Hornby was a safe place for us growing up. Mm. Um, backyard. I remember where Grammy Air Force Base was active, and we used to vividly remember. Yeah, I could see you know people jumping out of planes, like practicing oh, really? parachuting and yeah. um, cricket over the back was being played in Warren Park we backed onto that and uh, sport yeah it, w- it was a good place like Hornby was a great place to grow up yeah um, it's interesting you mentioned the um, the military mm. you know Wigram because today if people visit Christchurch it's like a suburb you yeah. know it's they've basically taken all of that land that was mm. the airstrip and everything mm. and it's now expanded into mm. this vast you know, sprawling um, mm. houses <laughs> and right. other things, and a really good movie theater. Yeah, yeah. And, and Fush is there, really amazing yep. um, fish and yep. chip Anton. shop. Yep. Yep. And Tom Matthews, shout out to him. He's been on the show before, actually. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. Um, so, but just thinking back, because I, I have an accent, but I grew up in Christchurch, mm. so I remember as well. You know, I, I went to school in um, in Rickerton, and I remember seeing it would have been those planes kind of flying over smaller planes and then i guess they would be landing at wigram which isn't that far yeah 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 and i remember just thinking you would count them right um yeah so i think it's hard to reflect on memories as children like we we had a video camera so we watched a lot of our memories to think about what was a miriam memory and what's a I've, I've seen that on video. Right. Um, we're probably one of the those families with those really large video cameras, and Dad used to follow us around watching us play in the garden. Oh, really? Outside. <laughs> so we have got those sorts of recordings. Um, but, yeah, I do remember primary school was a, was a really fun time growing up. Um, yeah, so there wasn't really any hardship or negativity yeah. around what was going on. You mentioned, though, um, you know, that Hornby traditionally, it's been poor socioeconomic mm. was that something that you were aware of growing up or mm. was it something that later on you've reflected and realized uh, definitely later on not as a child um, there was elements of some friendships that I had at primary school and what we could afford and what they could afford mm. it would be definitely reflections around that and going oh why do they you know um, bring a little bit less lunch or, or why do they why have holes in your shoes and that sort of thing so but I would traditionally think Hornby's actually already, always been reasonably um, expensive place to live um, compare, compared to other suburbs. Yeah. I don't know, I remember mum and dad saying that, but um, but there's parts of Hornby that are a little bit... We were, we're in Hornby South, which is near Warren Park, so, um, yeah. Yeah, uh, it's just interesting because I know we're going to get on to the work that Upstream does in supporting charities. That's right. So I'm always interested in people's backgrounds Mm. that you know where they've grown up and the charities that you're supporting Mm. and the work that they're doing like already i can see some connection points Mm. between your history 
in what you do today, but mm. that will become clearer as we go. Yeah, sure. <laughs> so in through primary school and you know getting into high school, what sort of things were you into at school? So I was definitely known for my sport. So played cricket since I was five years old, and Deb had represented um, some teams when he was younger and spent the time teaching me how to do correct technique. Right. Um, cricket was something that I was naturally gifted at and through primary school and intermediate and then merging into high school um, was was pretty talented and people could kind of see that and it started representing Canterbury and um, at a young age um, and doing quite well and so into sort of the intermediate uh, there was a couple of occasions where you know um, I played for the intermediate school and I think I recorded 400s in a row like week by week after week and, yeah. and we won because I had done well and if we lost if I hadn't so sometimes was naturally talented um, and got into papers and that sort of thing so cricket was definitely the thing like if people th- um, talked about what I was, I was good at that was the thing yeah um, and I played rugby as well and, and was pretty talented at that and it led to a, um, a sports scholarship with St Andrews College okay. when I was year 11, um, which kind of changed my life a little bit. So, right, interesting. Yeah. And at that young age, like I'm just thinking, that's still pretty young, right? Like that's mm. 14, 15 sort of age. Mm. What was that doing for your own sense of identity? Because mm. I can see where you would easily... Or for me, if it, if it happened to me, I mm. would start thinking, well, I am a cricket player. Mm. That That's mm-hmm. my primary source mm. of identity. But, yeah, I don't know. It might be a point you can reflect on now. But what do you think that was doing, you know, mm. at that age? Uh, definitely agree with you. I think cricket's one of those sports, and I was known as a batsman. Okay. So you make a bad decision, and you're waiting till next week to have another shot right <laughs> and and I think what I found really hard about the sport was in rugby you knock the ball on hey look there's a scrum hey the worst case scenario is they score a try but you can get you can get back to sort of making it right yep. whereas cricket I found really a mental game um, and I struggled often if I didn't succeed um, one week you know I struggled mentally with that yeah. and as I got older um, and there was weeks where you didn't perform. I really struggled with that. Mm. And and because I was talented and, and growing up, um, people knew me as um, a good cricketer. Um, and there was a stage where I started to lose passion for the sport. Right. But what was I if I wasn't a cricketer? Um, and so you absolutely could sort of see some of that mental uh, wrestling that was going on for me. Even though I was talented, you know, there was other things that, I was looking to try and do and just didn't really feel like yeah it was a real wrestling time especially mm. through my teenage years mm. and that kind of led to kind of um, my, my parents were open about the mental health struggles as young people sure um, and young adults and then that led to um, me sort of realizing that actually my mental health um, was something that possibly could be passed down through the genes so mm you've got this sort of identity with cricket and then the performance anxiety you know if i performed i'm on top of the moon and if right. i didn't i'm feeling pretty low um and then as well as sort of like the stage of life that you're in as a teenager and um the struggles that are going on yeah um, so i found myself getting quite depressed through my teenage years and mm. um yeah so known for sport but 
yeah, it was interesting. Um, so, yeah, the, I the, there's the potential for a perfect storm there, isn't there? Of because yeah. of, being a teenager, like it's hard. It's hard anyway. <laughs> you're you're yeah. working out who you are and where you fit, and why isn't this friend talking to me today? Yeah. And what's going? And I have mm. to study for exams, and sure. all of that stuff is happening. And then to have the extra layer of, you know, representing Canterbury, or you mm. know, going into bat and getting out mm. with only three points or something mm. like it's yeah it must have been hard yeah i remember vividly think and, th- and this is no fault um i remember when i was struggling and, and managed when i was 16 to get a scholarship to go to st andrews college so a scout had spotted my talent and i was at hornby high and i was i was pretty happy with being at that school and had a good group of friends but mm. managed to get a scholarship and, and i didn't want to go I, was, I said no i don't want to go right um and didn't understand the opportunity that it was. So three year full scholarship right. to play cricket and rugby for the school and there's plenty of other people that would have said yes to it. But I was like, no, I've got a good group of friends um, playing, happy to play club level for the local team. So what was it that switched to then say, okay, I'll take up the scholarship? <laughs> it was my grandparents said, oh, we'll, we'll buy you a car and so you can drive to school. And oh, I was okay. like, yeah, cool, I'm happy with that. <laughs> <laughs> so when I was year 11, um, managed to have a full license by the end of year 11. It was a bit different back then. Yeah, um, yeah. You could get your license pretty quick. So for me, it was um, that was the deciding factor. So right. They'd <laughs> <laughs> pay some petrol money. I was like, oh, that's cool. Um, so it didn't take much, but it was a good decision. Look, um, Hornby High uh, was an amazing school. We had amazing teachers, mm. and I loved that school so much that I went back and did youth work there for nine years. So wow. I loved the school. St Andrews College and what it gave me is greater opportunities around sport mm. and Hornby High didn't have a cricket team but St Andrews College was in the um, you know representative sort of level and I got to play cricket and be coached by really high calibre coaches and mm. um, do really well and that led to a scholarship to go overseas to England to play cricket mm. and took that opportunity but, but to be honest my mental health through that time was the thing that was really uh, I was really struggling with sport and who I was as a person and um, there was a comment that my grandparents made actually um, when I decided when I was 19 I'm going to finish cricket I'm going to give up I've lost um, passion for it and I was a lot of my friends were going towards representing Canterbury in New Zealand and they were really it was so hard to make that decision and I remember my grandparents saying oh um, oh, I'm real gutted because we're not going to see you on TV and it sort of showed the vulnerability that I was in, like that cut quite deep. Mm. The fact that I had to make a call that was probably right for me, but I was letting people down. Mm. And I've really struggled with that feeling I've had to process, like I'm not letting anyone down. Mm. I'm just choosing that, yes, I am talented, but I'm choosing to close that door and another door is going to open. Right, um, yeah. And who am I if I'm not a cricketer? So I think you said it best before mm. in asking that question. Yeah. Um, so that kind of represented my teenage years of mm. this wrestling. Um, but in amongst that, um, look, big stuff was going on for my family. Um, as a primary school child, you know, things were solid and nothing was wrong solid family and then my parents divorced when I was 14 and over a period of sort of those three years it was pretty volatile and Mm. got to the point where um, chaos was happening at home I was really talented at cricket but that was up and down each week 
and then you're really just wrestling with all that stuff as well as um, possibly some hereditary sort of mental health issues yeah. in the family. So, yeah, that was a perfect storm of, of why I needed a youth worker in yeah. my life. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, it'll be interesting to see uh, as the story unfolds mm. that, that path that you took mm. as a youth worker, like what you were doing. Can I just ask a question? Sure. You know, that first day when you walk into St. Andrews, mm. and for those listening, mm. it's quite a different school to other schools in Christchurch, shall yes. we say it that way? Mm. Um, yeah, what was that like? Um, and how, how did you, I, I'm not sure if the word is cope or if the word is mm. how did you adapt? Yeah, what, what was that experience for you having come from this environment to this new one? Yeah, so for context, Hornby High, I think Desol 2 school, um, if you use the Desol system. Um, yeah, I think St Andrews like definitely Desol 10 private school, uh, quite elitist. Like I, to be honest, in three years, that I can't remember my first day, but I, I remember the the last year feeling the same as I felt in those first weeks, as I don't belong here. Right. And I think it's a lot to do with it's something I still could connect with that emotion of like I don't belong here I'm not from this world and um, I think being part of Hornby and growing up and being around those um, the people that we hung out with at school and that sort of thing like to me I think it was really obvious that well this is a different world and mm. this just is I can't connect with this world the same and I don't know what that means I just know I can I can remember it even now Right. thinking like wow and so I was there and I did well and, and I passed all my NCA and I, I did the best I could um, with also what was going on with my family and I did well at sport and uh, won awards and that sort of thing but um, still didn't feel like I connected mm. um, yeah it's always an interesting thing isn't it identity and and where we fit within the world and, mm. and those years are particularly hard and then to be in a different school context. Mm. When I was similar age, we were, I was 17, I think, so it was sixth form, mm. and my grandfather got cancer back in America, so I'm from America originally, mm. and so we moved back, and so I was put into a high school there in the senior year, you know, like mm. the last year of the high school, so I come in as a fresh wow. person, and, and it was super hard. It was not mm. an easy thing, mm. um, and I remember struggling with that, you mm. know, like, where do I fit here, and how do I? Yeah, so I can I can understand mm. that. So the um, going to the UK mm. um, was that for a one year thing or what? Six, six months in the end. Yeah. Um, yeah, it was an opportunity through a relationship with a Christchurch based club here. Sent two two scholarship recipients over mm-hmm. to play for this county sort of area or this uh, village club cricket. Yeah, uh, the level of cricket wasn't as high as I thought it would be, but they gave us an opportunity to have a job over the year. Yeah, have a, a house, have some expenses, and kind of be based out um, north part of England and in Northumberland, play cricket each week. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, I saw it as an opportunity to get out of New Zealand. Yeah, because again, reflecting on the turmoil going on for me as a teenager, like mm. for me, it was a ticket out. Right. Um, and yes, I was losing interest in cricket, but I was like, oh, this is a great opportunity yeah. to, to sort of really see if cricket's going to be that avenue or, but really just to get away from all the chaos. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. My wife is from England, so her father played cricket for his local club for oh, cool. his whole life. Yeah. Literally since he was five. 
He's hmm. now 83, and he wow. still goes and watches. No <laughs> um, that's called the Hartford Cricket Club. And they used to get people coming in from overseas to to bolster the roster. You yeah. know, someone from that's Australia, right. someone yes. from New Zealand, and there'd be the one expat sort of person. Um, I think he even had some of them stay with him, you mm. know, because he was really involved in yeah. coaching. And, and um, yeah, so uh, I'm kind of familiar with that system in there. And did... In the UK, did you feel like I want to go home, or did you feel like I would love to stay here if I could, or did your identity as a Kiwi, mm. yeah, what was going on there? Um, again, this club over in England was quite elitist, so right. um, the connection was through the private school here, St Andrews College. I think it was just another place where I didn't feel I belong. Um, we played cricket and. I loved working, to be honest. Full-time yeah. work right. outside of cricket. I was in a hotel at a bar meeting with, working with some people that probably in England since would be lower society. Th those are my people. I, I just got on with them really well. Yeah. But dealing with management and dealing with sort of some of the elite people of um, the arrangement, yeah, just it just kind of was another reminder. I'm like, I don't know if these are my people or... Mm. Um, which fast forward, like uh, you can kind of see how um, that sort of propelled me into some of the work that I did mm. um, for the next decade. Um, but yeah, I never knew what that meant. Why? Mm. Um, it sounds like you'd been exposed though to to use an old term, different classes. Absolutely. You know, and and England is a classic example of people. They are very mm. upper class, you know, and there's kind of a more stratification of mm. Well, we stayed with the Lord, so to give you an idea, the billet um, opportunity, the scholarship was to stay with a, um, a family that lived in a castle and uh, it was really wow. with a massive wine cellar and stuff that I'm like, I don't even know what a wine cellar was. <laughs> there's things that well, I'm just not exposed to, you know, yeah. growing up in Hornby. Um, we just we were blue collar. Like we we worked really hard for for our output. Yeah. Whereas you know that sort of system and and not knowing any of their backstory, it's the type of probably family that probably have had inherited um, certain roles and and assets. So for me, it was I'm like, wow, this is not a world I know. Mm. But very blessed and, and appreciative of the fact that they put us up and yeah and looked after us. Um, but yeah, it ended up having a bit of a, a clash with management over the year, and it was it was sort of over that class system, mm. and, and being 18, 19, not being great at um, how I handled that, I would put my hat, hand up to say, yeah, I didn't handle that very well, mm. but everything inside of me was all social justice, like everything I was fighting for, right. um, and it was just over how they treated people, and I decided to put my um, foot down and say, you know, who are you? Um, but over there, you don't do that to class systems above you. So right, right. You got yeah. in trouble for that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So what happened next? You came back to New Zealand. Yeah. So um, look, fast forward. Um, basically, this was kind of an opportunity to get away, and because my parents had divorced, and um, when I was seventeen, it was just really hard. If I was honest, I, I had a youth worker. Um, in my life who had really come alongside me for, for three years to say, hey, how are things going? And he was really the solid stakeholder outside of the two, two more that was true and solid and I could lean on. Um, it was my mum and dad 
but through that season, I didn't really know what who I was. I was struggling with my own identity and who am I le- leaning on. Mm. Um, and then I've changed schools and I've changed friend groups and there's lots of stuff going on. So I guess to get to England, having a youth worker for those three years be solid, basically um, saving my life um, through some of the hard stuff that I was contemplating. For me to be able to get um, right mentally and then get to England, I thought, this is great, I'm gonna, cricket's going to be my career. Right. I'm going to come back and it's going to be a reset um, and I've left all the hard stuff of high school behind. And yes, my parents aren't back together, but um, are now in a mature place. What ended up happening was basically the uh, stuff that I felt over there. There were some injustices that were happening in the hotel that I was working in with management and the people who'd sent us, and I decided to just tell them where to go and, and try and sort it out. And I was protecting some of the people that they were really abusing and uh, didn't handle it very well. But come back, uh, we got into trouble with um, who had sent us and they ended up getting kicked out of the cricket club who had sent us because we had disrespected this really high, high official person over there. Sure. So yeah. never really understood w- w- the story and why we'd, we'd put our foot down, but ended up that wasn't left in a great way. So for me, cricket was on the way out anyway. Mm. And this is really just the nail in the cop thing going, look, I don't even want to be a part of this society. Cricket's quite a class sort of system. I guess over in England, it's really interesting in mm. terms of how cricket... Is portrayed, so I just wanted to get away from all that. Mm. And so I came back to New Zealand and decided I'm not gonna, I'm gonna quit cricket, stop mm. playing. Um, I'd injured my knee playing rugby in, at high school, so I couldn't really play rugby. So sport was gone, and that was all I was known for. Right. So to come back to your original first questions, mm. now I'm 19 year old back in New Zealand, haven't really thought about education and what I was gonna do. And the thing that was really going to be my next 10 to 15 years decided to either walk away from it or I can't do it. Mm. So I got this wee crisis. And it, and it was at that point where the thing that worked really well for those three years um, that got me through some hardship was a youth worker that said, hey, I'm here for you and I care for you. And that person, or it could have been someone that I was involved in, said, I think you'd be a really good youth worker. Like, have you thought about what you're going to do next now you're back from England? Mm. I was like, what is a youth burger? And they said, kind of what I did for you. I was like, oh, oh yeah, that's quite cool. Mm. They said, look, you can do a couple of years study and do an internship where you're based in a school and do youth work. And so I was like, oh, that's cool. And so I didn't really think much about it and just jumped in and 13 years later, I was still doing youth work. Wow. Um, so, yeah, I guess. Um, that's amazing. Can I ask about that person? Sure. Um, what was it that they did well? What was it that made them, you know, because you were going through all that turmoil. Sure. There's a, it, the, the schools, the home life, the sport, like it's all happening. Mm. It sounds like they had a really big influence on you. Mm. I'm just curious, reflecting, like what was it that was so good about that youth worker? Uh, like the specifics to me uh back then didn't have cell phone texting and that sort of thing. It was really they called at the right times, right. they noticed at the right times, they showed up at the right times. And it's not to say that they were um, 
you know, well educated and they said the right things and they gave the right, mm. you know, there was words. no perfect answer. Right? <laughs> and, uh, it, was, it was really they showed up and they were there and I knew they were there and I could trust that they would be there if I needed help. Mm. And I think I often reflect on. Um, we planted a whole lot of trees a couple of years ago with a whole lot of young people and often you do with a, a new se- a new tree planted the ground you put little wee bamboo stakes around it and you put a wee shield around it Yeah. and research says that often a young person to thrive through um, hardship needs five stakes around them uh-huh. and for me a youth worker represents one of those stakes and it could be a really teacher that went the extra mile, sports coach um, an uncle, auntie, your parents could act as that stake. But yeah, so for me, that youth worker was the stake. And often at times, it was the only stake that I had. Mm. You know, So if, if, if he wasn't there, and uh, for a lot of young people, they don't have that. Mm. And that's where we're getting um, into problems with what our young people are going through. Are we there for them? Mm. So the fact that he was there, and I knew he was there, and I could reach out, and he showed up at the right time and didn't have to say the perfect words, but just noticed, mm. um, I think, was everything. Mm. Yeah, that's really good. Because underlying the words that you're talking about, I can tell that there was a lot of mental distress at the mm. time, right? Like there was, there's roads open to people, and it sounds like you could have gone off in a different mm. road, but mm. that person was that stake that kept you on mm. this other path. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Um, look, my mental health wasn't great. Like at the point where we, we've got a crisis in New Zealand, where young people were choosing to self harm, or, or even worse, you know, decide like oh, it's too much. I want to get out and um, make silly decisions where they're just not thinking. And and that was me. I didn't know what I was worth. Mm. And sport was that identity. So when that was either I was choosing to go away from that or or. Um, it's taken away from me when I got injured for me I think that was the I'm like man I don't know what I'm going to do I couldn't really see ahead and mm. and so then you start contemplating you know um, who you are and and, mm. and and so having a stakeholder in your life is pivotal because mm. they are your brain when you're not thinking they are your heart when you're not feeling and they can bring those sorts of things that as a young person, you might have heard the term or you might have said to your own children, what are you thinking? Well, sometimes, like scientifically, you know, the adolescent brain is not fully developed till 25. So there's certain parts of um, a teenager's life that they aren't thinking, mm. you know. But who is thinking for them and saying, okay, what could you have done differently? Mm. And to me, it was having those key stakeholders that showed up to say, hey, how, how are you going? Mm. And what's going on? Yeah. And help you process that, so... That's great, yeah. I love that image of the five stakes and then the, mm. the protection around it because, mm. you know, I call this podcast Seeds because to me, seeds look like they're dead. Mm. You plant them if you give them water, light, nutrients, soil, mm. you know, protection, um, then they'll grow and you might end up with an amazing tree mm. that in turn produces a thousand apples, you know, mm. <laughs> and that it's that critical moment when you plant the seed like, Who's going to nurture it? Who's mm. going to help it grow? And it's a similar thing to what you're talking about here. So that work as a youth worker was that all back at Hornby High, or and and what was that? What group was that with? Yeah, so managed to twenty four seven youth work was the organisation that was. It's a relationship between a local church and a local school, and often involved a local community group 
that acted as the funding arm. And that relationship was formed in 2003 um, based in Christchurch. So when I had started doing youth work, it was 2007. So possibly might have been about 15 youth workers mm. under 24-7's organisation. So, so it's pretty early days because it's yeah. gotten a lot bigger, right? Yeah, I possibly could have guessed at about 160 youth workers now. So right. we were, were maybe the considered the pioneers, <laughs> the founders. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, well, what was r- hilarious was grew up in Hornby, went to Hornby High, high school. Um, yep, got a scholarship, went overseas, uh, went to St Andrews, went overseas, came back, started doing youth work back at Hornby High. Yeah. And remember being introduced to the teachers at Hornby High, and the, I wasn't a great student at year 9 and 10. I was often the class clown. And I remember watching the science teacher's face going, oh, you a youth worker. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I remember, I remember th- you. <laughs> yeah, I remember you. Like, has your life changed? And I was <laughs> like, no, no, trust me. Like, I'm a role model. <laughs> um, but, yeah, significant things had changed since being 14 to 19. So um, I always remember that it was hilarious, being introduced and, and just hearing her concern. Yeah. And had you chosen to go to Hornby, or did it? How did it end up? Well, I think there? because I was um, still like a lot of my connections are Hornby, and yeah. the youth worker that had journeyed alongside me was from Hornby as well, and okay. it was in Hornby High, so it was natural that um, um, you know my my studies could be under that local trust, local yeah. church relationship, and then naturally that a relationship with Hornby High School. So yeah, um, yeah. Then oh, I spent nine cool. nine years there. Wow. Mm. And can we give a shout out to that youth worker? Oh, absolutely, yeah. yeah. Who was so, that? Jay Gowdard. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. I'm not sure if he's, um, he might be. Um, He'll be a uh, guest at some point. Yeah, cool. He's hard to pin down. <laughs> he's a <laughs> yeah. busy guy. Yeah, so. Um, That's great. Jay, Jay, yeah. So definitely, uh, and there was other stakes, but for me, I think he was definitely the, the main one that got me mm. through that hardship. That's cool. Yeah, because he then went on to. Um, basically oversee 24-7 and then has set That's up right. another initiative um, with other founders, his wife in particular, um, Etu Tangata, which yes. is another thing. So Jay's on my list to have on the podcast. Oh, cool. Yeah, I need yeah. to I didn't know the context s- that sit down and make sure that he... Um, he tells me his story as well. Yeah. So this will be great because it will interweave. There will be two stories. and um, yep. Yeah, he's great. So you do that for how long do you say? Was it 13 so, uh, years? Or? Yeah, 13 years doing youth work, um, yeah. nine years at Hornby High. Yeah. And um, I think um, Jay was a youth worker with me and, and encouraged me and with another person to, to do youth work training and then come in Hornby High. And then Jay ended up leaving in 2008. So I was second year in, um, the only youth worker with another female. Wow. And um, probably pretty green, to be honest, not really knowing what a youth worker did and then being sort of running a youth community and being in the high school, uh, you learn pretty quick. Mm. Um, But after sort of a couple of years of really finding my feet, uh, yeah, nine years looking back, we'd journey with hundreds of young people. Yeah, and yeah, because Hornby High is pretty big school, isn't it? Yeah, it's about eight hundred now, eight fifty. But but back then it got down to about four hundred fifty. Okay, it's predominantly year nine to thirteen. Yeah, mm. and this was through the earthquakes, and there's a yeah. lot of stuff going on, isn't there? Yeah, so pre-earthquake started, and then obviously through the earthquake and what was going on, didn't affect too much in Hornby. It was a, probably mm. a solid area. Yeah. Um, foundational wise so but yeah lots of going on for young people outside of 
I guess the environmental stuff that was also affecting. Yeah. 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 Well, I'd love to talk about upstream and what you're doing there, but mm. maybe just bring us up to when that was. Maybe was that yeah. five, five or so years ago? Like, yeah. yeah. What was going on in your thinking mm. in terms of, yeah, maybe tell us a bit of that, you sure. know, the transition from youth worker to yep. what is upstream. Um, yeah. So uh, during the time of doing youth work, I was also privileged enough. I think it was 2013 and 20. Uh, 14 I believe or 14 and 15 but I was privileged to to manage the youth trust so we had a half a million dollar charitable trust and as I was doing sort of youth work I was also managing the charitable trust to basically look after 10 youth workers find enough funding for them and, and obviously do the operational side and that introduced me to fundraising and what we were doing is fundraising mm. to try and raise because you need significant money to be able to employ youth workers and and, and execute and um, just found that the ways that we were fundraising were the exact ways that everyone else was doing it and then in the hindsight looking back um, not a lot's changed for a lot of charitable trusts yeah um, but during that time I remember going to the board and saying like oh we need more funds uh, we're often projecting deficits and there's a lot of pressure on the manager to find enough money. Uh, what's our ways that we traditionally find money? Like, And they just said, look, get better at writing grants, get better at asking people for money, <laughs> donations. And find some wealthy people. <laughs> yeah, find some wealthy people. Hit up companies, you yeah. know. So I was like, okay, cool. So I did really well with grant, like, like overhauled everything. Like what are we not applying for? And we, we found some money, some extra money that year. We, we started, we developed a donor program and um, started hitting up some individuals for donors and donations and then business sponsorship. We're a small trust in comparison to some other big ones in New Zealand. So most of our pool of opportunity, we're local, local companies and they might give us 500 bucks, $1,000. Yeah. So we did as much we can could. The problem was we lost a grant and it was worth about $30,000. So as much as I had done, on all these other areas, um, it was undermined because essentially council has said, oh, we're gonna stop funding that area. And we were so heavy on wages as well as quite vulnerable on our budget. Um, we didn't have great reserves. And so uh, exposed to kind of what it's like when someone up the stream, and this is will reference why we called upstream, um, up the stream says no, to you and you've applied for something and they say no, um, it's going to affect you. you. You actually only get the outcome of what's coming down. You can't control them, you can do the best you can. But if they say yes, then you get something down the stream. But if they say no, you're going to get the benefits of uh, what's going to happen. So mm -hmm. well, we ended up having to do a restructure where we lost a youth worker because he needed full-time work. We could only offer him 25 hours because of this um, restructured income. And young people lost a youth worker in their community. You know, families lost the support that stakeholders now pulled out of the ground. And it was all to do with the fact that council decided we're not going to fund that anymore. We're going to choose to put our money over here. So it meant that we were so we were so vulnerable to someone saying yes or no. Mm. I wanted to change that. So we went back to the trustees and said, we need to diversify our income. We need to build up reserves. We need a better budget. And we need to think outside the box, like what are our ideas? And it kind of dawned on me that no one was really thinking outside of the traditional ways that I call um, uh, downstream income. 
So downstream fundraising is grant writing, contracts, um, donors, um, business sponsorship. Mm-hmm. And it's often like, again, it's at the mercy of someone says yes up the stream, you benefit from that. If someone says no, you're going to benefit from that. So hence the name, we thought, well, what does it look like to go upstream, like go against the current and be one of those people at the top? If we could be one of those people at the top, we can feed a lot more charities because we, we want to remove all the red tape. Like, hey, look, we trust that you're doing a good job. Don't even have to apply for a grant. That takes time. That takes resources. Here's some money. Mm-hmm. And so for us, we had this vision of, like, we've got to tap into these other income streams where we can generate our own money and take control back so that we don't have the situation again. Mm-hmm. The second year of being a manager, we didn't find enough. We lost another grant and we had a restructure again. Again, So the only two times in the history of this trust that we've had restructures was when I was a manager. <laughs> and it really killed, obviously, the culture. So it killed, undermined the culture. It, was, um, it wasn't fun, to be honest. And it, everyone sort of blamed you because you're the manager that hasn't found enough money. Mm. And and I got heaps of slack for that. And I remember I'm like, oh, this is not worth it. I don't want this job. Um, yeah. And I wanted to go back to youth work because I was just sick of um, doing the best I could and it not being good enough. Yeah. And possibly tapped into my sporting background and not being good enough and failing and, and the anxiety comes up again. Mm-hmm. So for the next four years, I did youth work out in the cell and worked in West Melbourne, which is hilarious because West Melbourne is predominantly sending kids to schools like St Andrews College. So, right. so it stopped working out of Hornby, which was all I knew, and worked in West Melbourne, which traditionally sort of gave me a connection to a, that world again. Um, but what I did learn is essentially we need to do fundraising better. And as um, I had two daughters um, at that stage, we'd built, uh, bought a house in Rolleston. I knew my time doing direct youth work was coming to an end. Mm-hmm. But I had this desire to, to solve a problem that, hey, how is it going to serve young people um, outside of being a youth worker? It was to solve some of the hardest issues that are stopping youth workers being um, around for 10 years or stopping us from having four youth workers instead of one. It's funding. It's funding. It's always funding. Um, so as I talked to Charitable Trust, I said, there's, and there's heaps of research around this. What are the three issues that charities really face in New Zealand, in Australia, probably in the world? Three things. One is vol- not enough volunteers. Um, and But one of those three is easily um, fundraising, mm-hmm. funding, not having enough. So I just sort of thought, well, let's just solve that problem. Um, so we committed, we're going to start a business. And I did some training. I did a whole year's training course on running a social enterprise. Didn't know what that meant. Um, and what we're going to do is we're going to start a business. So I wrote down 77 ideas. I was an ideas man. wrote down all these ideas. Even when my wife was giving birth, I was brainstorming with the midwife about <laughs> um, hiring um, uh, breast pumps, I think it was. <laughs> I'm trying to make money to send back to charity. So she, that was hilarious, but um, maybe not for my wife. But, um, you know, just my brain was on. Yeah. This, I, this is what I was made for. Right. Um, and this was my next season. As I still did youth work, I knew I was going to start a business. Yeah. didn't know what it was. Though. So this is really your entrepreneurial side coming out, mm. you know, thinking of ideas. And, mm. and re- instead of thinking from a charity context, which is, please, sir, can I have some more? Correct. Actually saying we want to become the ones with the money mm. to then supply, mm. you know, funds mm. to charities. Yeah. And I think that's probably yeah. about the time that we met because yes, this is like, right. what, 2017 mm-hmm. or 2018 2017. or something? Yep. Yeah. Because um, 
I remember meeting you and, and James as well, who That's right. give a big shout out to him. Yeah, James Harris. Yeah, yeah um, I think the two of you came in to our office and we were talking because I just put out a book about social enterprise and thinking about like what does it all mean and and you came in with this concept mm -hmm. and so we we're like okay well what would it mean <laughs> if you set up a business mm. um, and and how could you make that viable right and maybe just go into the the details of what the business actually does and, sure. and you know how you partner with other people yeah well it comes back to when I was a manager there was a business that used to give us a thousand dollars and each year give us a thousand dollars and we'd use that for our youth work and then one year he said I can't give you that thousand dollars and I said why I thought all businesses were really rich and every you know and he said oh it's because my I haven't got enough revenue this year and that part of the budget that I set aside to give I just don't, I can't, I have to use that for my own operations. So this is my first insight into how business worked. I didn't know, I'm, I'm a charity manager, right? So mm -hmm. everything to me is just charitable mindset. Mm -hmm. And so I turned around and said, well, what would it look like for me to help you with your revenue? And he said, well, you just have to find more customers. And this guy was a heat pump cleaner, turned out to be our first supplier. Mm. Um, and I said, well, I know people with a heat pump. Why don't we just set up a system where I just bring you heat pump cleans and you give me a percentage of that. Would that help be able to, you know, secure some revenue for our uh, funding for our charities? And, and then the light bulb clicked. I was like, this is something. This, I, maybe this is the business. And so a heat pump cleaner turned into a heat pump installer because naturally some heat pumps don't need clean. They need a re replaced. And so I brokered that deal and found someone that was connected to our youth work and yeah, now I had a heat pump installer and both those suppliers were still um, uh, with us. But how it basically works is um, what we found is a lot of the companies were approaching to ask for direct sponsorship. Often, if they had a good year, yes, they might be able to give you some money. But if they didn't, no, they wouldn't be able to give you money. So that's downstream income was yes, no, depending on how they're going. The other problem is 30 other charities have probably already asked them. So I might be late to the party, they've already given away their budget, and now I can't do anything about that. So for me, how Upstream works is basically, it again takes control back. It says, well, people need things, they need products, they need services. And if I can actually ask customers to use these suppliers, and I've brokered a deal with them, if I bring you a lead that converts to a sale, would you be prepared to give me a percentage of that lead? Now you've got a value proposition that actually is also going to have a charitable benefit. So these suppliers who are good at what they do um, essentially are prepared to be a part of our mission and give a percentage of the sales that we can bring them and we give evidence of that, then it's going to actually generate a little bit of funding and then if that customer comes back to them, it's going to generate that funding again. And all we need to do is find really good suppliers and broker deals and tell the vision of what we're trying to do. Oh, it's a win for them, so they get a sale that they wouldn't have got anyway. Mm -hmm. The customer gets a good supplier that we think we would personally spend our own money on. So they're often getting a really good supplier and our sales convert really high. Um, and then the charity gets some money. And for me, it's a triple win, it's a triangle. And so could we scale this thing um, to a point where we have a real large supply chain of things that 
heaps of companies need and charities need and government needs. Um, but it all started with a heat pump cleaner um, that couldn't give me money. Yeah. Um, and you just flip it. Um, and I'd like to also tell the story of if I went to that heat pump cleaner and said, hey, would you write me a check for $1,000, which I was doing, he says, uh, sorry, I can't. And basically turn around and say, hey, if I brought you $10,000 worth of heat pump cleaning in a year, would you be prepared to give me $1,000 as a result of that 10%? And he's like, yeah, that's a good deal. It's the same outcome that we get. We get the $1,000. But one is a yes and one is a no. And what we found that principle being is a, it's a we can both um, win together. And in, for me, I think, yeah, where we go together, we grow together, and we can also do amazing good for the charities which is the driving force anyway so yeah that's really cool and so over the years so five years now <laughs> yes yeah. how has it developed and mm. yeah um also talk about yourself as a charity mm. like what what is where does that fit in yeah so the first sale was on 23rd of february 2018 we had a heat pump clean there were three heat pump cleans cleaned by a charity that we'd said oh you've got three heat pumps why don't you get them cleaned and it generated 23 dollars and we'd brokered, I think it was 15% with this heat pump cleaner. If we brought them a sale, he'll give us 15% of the transaction. So it generated about $23. And in that first year, that whole calendar year, we had 81 inquiries and we'd given away about $5,500. And it was a gruelling task of selling. Mm-hmm. And we had about 19 suppliers by that stage. So we had heat pump installers and electricians and heaps of trades and that sort of thing. But I think for, for me, I think we've just ticked over five years later. We've just surpassed quarter of a million, so 250,000. Um, and the first two years was a combination of 22,000. The last three years have been about 225,000. Mm-hmm. So one unique thing that we did right at the start, we, th- we foresaw what was going to happen, was we went back to these suppliers originally and said, if you gave, if we bring you a sale, would you give us a, an amount that we can give to our charities? But we said to them, if they, that customer continues to use you, would you continue to honour a contribution to our charities as long as that customer rem- remains your customer? And that has meant that this year, 63% of all the money we give to charities is built up of trail money. So it's basically the last four years of working hard to find the first customer, that first transaction, Mm. has meant that some of these are waste contracts that are three years, some of these are commercial cleaning contracts that might last three years. And we're we're making money for our charities um, without actually doing a whole lot. We're just looking for new sound inquiries this year. So I call it sustainable fundraising because you put all the effort in each year, but you're going to build this really cool snowball, mm. a nest egg. Um, but one of the most important things that we did right at the start was to become charitable ourselves uh, as a business. Um, money is the root of all evil, and it can be that people, when they see money, they, they you know things change from your original plan. And what we're proud of is the fact that we met with you right at the start and said, if this idea works, we want the community to absolutely benefit from it. We have to protect this idea 
we want to almost lock ourselves in so the company is owned 100% by charities and we're not going to be able to change it if we essentially um, this this takes off or we think oh it'd be nice to make a lot more money out of this mm. personally mm-hmm. and 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 for me I think it's been one of the best decisions we've ever done it also has restricted the ability to grow mm. um, uh, traditional ways of getting capital and that sort of thing so for me I think it's meant that upstreams is the communities and the suppliers own that and the charities own it and the customers that are bought into it mm. see it as man this is the community's um, supply chain um, and so being a business that then was owned as a charitable trust structure so the foundation owns um, upstream limited was the way that we had set it up yeah um, and I think at that time the government was sort of wrestling with how they made limited liability companies charitable but we were not able to get charitable status as a limited liability company so forced to structure it this way um, yeah but yeah 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 I remember we switched it around a bit yes. and then um, got it through because ultimately you were wanting to make a statement you know we talked about stakes you know like this was a stake in the sand and mm. you know, the flag is there this is a charitable thing rather mm. than this is a for-profit thing and it's something for people listening it's actually a really important thing to think about mm. in the early stages of what you're doing i actually did a 10-minute episode of seeds on this question oh, because okay. people yep. I get it all the time and people always get confused. So I'll put a link in the show notes actually sure. so people can listen to it. But you're you know, there's diverging paths and if you had chosen to go down more of a traditional company route of for profit mm. with dividends, then you would have different investors who could be interested as an example. But by doing that you then are not identifying as a charity yourself and then it's harder to get the suppliers and other people on board because then you're telling a different story which is from the profits some of it will go to a private individual so there's swings and roundabouts of either mm. way but you made that choice and then we we worked together to structure it in a way that got charitable status mm. yeah so it's really cool and so is it is it got a regional focus or an area that you're focused on in terms of the money, like a quarter of a million? That's mm. that's really cool. I mm. hadn't really realized, and particularly in the last two years, yeah, yeah, that's like a significant amount of money. Mm. Um, yeah, have you got a focus of what it's going towards? Is it youth related? Or yeah, yeah. yeah so obviously doing youth work, um, we wanted to focus that money in a particular area that we could tell story around. Mm-hmm. For for us, it was really about got a crisis in New Zealand we, we have to see the well-being of children and young people strengthened and we want to fund things without red tape we want to fund stakeholders key things that make a young person's life through these hardships better off or they are supported by these stakeholders so we have five pillars with upstream that we fund and all our charities that we have we're giving money to um, come under these five pillars so for us, look, we fund youth work, um, A, probably a little bit biased, but the fact that youth workers were pivotal in my life and the fact that I know what a youth worker does mm. and how pivotal it is, it was an easy area to fund. Youth work, we also fund counselling subsidies for kids that can't afford it. We know that that's an important area. We fund kids with disabilities and often the family can benefit from that because often they don't choose that path. 
whether it's an accident or they're born into disability, you know, neurodiverse um, children, you know, so that's an area that we recognise. We fund mentoring matches um, as well. Mentoring plays a, a, a pivotal role in a young person's life, having a, a mentor. And then a fifth pillar, which is around whānau support services. So f- focused on charitable trust that might be uh, really empowering parents to be um, uh, with an educational approach or empowering parents to be better parents. Um, for us, that's a yeah, healthy environment. You can send that kid mm. from an hour of mentoring with a youth worker into a positive environment. Or you could also send that kid into a toxic environment where it really just unraveled the last 60 minutes that I spent with them. Mm because things aren't better off. So we can focus on maybe healthy environments. We can actually... So everything is focused on young people being better off. Mm. Um, and so that quarter of a million has gone to about 17 charities, but we've we've just sort of refined that down to about 12 charities that we're focused on, and, and predominantly are all in Canterbury. But our focus is New Zealand-wide. Mm. We want a supply chain that's New Zealand-wide. We want customers using our upstream suppliers New Zealand-wide and we want charities benefiting uh, New Zealand-wide. We're just yeah. in this stage of trying to um, come up with the next five years and what it looks like. So. Yeah, well, that's exciting though. Mm. So um, in terms of like if we've got people listening here in Tauranga, mm. in Northland, in Invercargill, yeah. wherever it is, mm. there's a potential there for them to even be involved in this if they've mm. got a business and you know they want to get on board with what you're talking mm. about. Yeah, we're in this um, cool place where you've celebrated quarter of a million. Um, the suppliers are super proud. Customers that have triggered those transactions are really bought in. Charities benefited from that. But I guess for me it's like, you know, I, wa- I want to be doing that every year, a quarter of a million. You know, the council might be giving away a million dollars in grants, you know. What would it look like if social procurement also matched that every year? You know, that's my dream, is that this is a significant amount of money that comes from a, what people are already spending. So for me, I think that, that vision, reality of why we need to do that for young people is, is right in your face. Um, our needs of young people are, are right there. And so for me, it's it's going to come from people putting their hands up to say, hey, look, would you, I've got a business or I know someone, would you consider them as a supplier in Wellington or in Auckland or Tauranga? Um, absolutely. For me, we're looking for more suppliers. We're also equally looking for, for companies, organisations, individuals saying, hey, is there a supplier that I can use that would generate um, a contribution for these charities? Mm. Um, so it's two sides of that transaction that we're looking for. Yeah, yeah. that's really great. And the, and I guess we talked earlier, you know, you chose the path of charity. Mm. So potentially if people just like what you're doing and they mm. want to give you money to mm. then give on to these charities, mm. that would be an option too, right? Because yeah. you're able to give the tax donee receipts. Yep. and yeah. yeah, we're a conduit. And and what we found is something that we didn't even think about. Some larger companies that we're engaged with, um, look, they, they just say, oh, look, can you just pass on a donation and cut it up to your good causes and... So we've often passed on, I didn't even think about this, but mm. you know, being the conduit where we say, yeah, 100%, we'll pass it on. Mm. And so we can issue a donor, donor receipt individually. We've had some people that contribute to us and want to see us succeed because um, up, Upstream has its own operational budget. We're trying to give away 100% of the money out of the transaction. But hey, how do you pay your wages? Mm. And that's something that we're working through to be more sustainable as we grow. Mm. Um, 
but yeah, so we've had some people donate directly to to support us, but equally, um, we'd be a conduit where we support our charities. So mm. yeah. that's great. Yeah, because I can see. You know, I'm always thinking in terms of stories. Mm. So you're telling one one type of story which you've tapped into, which is the the businesses, mm. and then a percentage or an agreed amount flowing mm. through to support the charities. But I can also see another part of that story would be if those businesses turned around and said to their staff, you know, they've got a bunch of people, and they say, actually, as a business, not only are we going to give a percentage, but we've decided to take this amount and just give it, you know, just, we're just going to mm. give it away. Like mm. it would be a great story uh, as mm. they're supporting in multiple mm. ways. So yeah, it's yeah. really good. Yeah. I was privileged with the canning firm yesterday to sit down with their staff and share the story of what they're a part of. They're one right. of our suppliers and it was the director that's our contact person, but there are a lot of the staff that didn't really know much about upstream. And it was cool to be able to talk about, hey, how do we make this, how, how do we make some of your purchases? Like a, a company of their size had cleaning and they had catering and they had coffee and mm. there's little procurement purchases that they can look at on our supply chain to start doing some good. Then as a supplier, they're also looking at, well, how do we have clients that approach us that then we can obviously agree, give a greeted amount out of um, clients. And, and then they also talked about, well, what can we use at home because we there are some supplies that we can use at home. So within this one conversation, there's mm. three opportunities mm-hmm. to actually generate money for charity, um, and none of it we take from. It's 100% the community's money. So for me, it's it's proud to be able to say like this is this, if this is value to you and you need that and the price is right, we all celebrate, um, and the young people are better off for it. Mm. And so, um, yeah, I think the world goes round when people catch the concept and go, ha. Huh, Oh wow! Yeah, this is a no-brainer. Why wouldn't people do that? Yeah, we just need more people knowing about us. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, hopefully, some people are listening right now, and they'll be able to. We'll put make sure we put like website and mm, information cool. and ways to contact you. Yeah, you know, sure. If they're interested. Um, yeah. So, any other plans that you want to share? You know, like w- any other innovations or ideas of mm. where you're headed? Yeah. Well, what is interesting is. Five years ago, we were 70% of our inquiries were consumers using Upstream at home. And then today, we're actually 70% companies and organisations looking at what they spend using our suppliers. So we've flipped. And where we see uh, a lot of our impact has been um, a company going, hey, look, I know we, we'd love to explore what good we can do and possibly are already giving to charity, but here's an easy way that they can use their spend to actually double down or generate more. And so, yeah, we've had heaps of companies come in and go, right, let's look at your cleaner, let's look at cleaning products, fire extinguishers, like look through lines they're already spending Mm. um, and start building up some reporting, like some impact reporting. We can clearly say every couple of months, like, hey, look, here's the good you have done and continue to do. And so it's a, it's a wee market that often helps companies obviously look for their own ways to actually engage. But equally, it turns into some powerful marketing and powerful storytelling. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we're privileged enough to work directly with the construction company building the stadium here in Christchurch and manage to get that punch way above our weight to engage with them and just say, we want to do good through your whole supply chain. What could we get on the site of the stadium? What could we get through your 
staff engaged? And how do we tell the story around um, uh, the social good that we can do? And they just loved it. And so we're into this relationship where we're looking for opportunities all the time. Mm. And you'll start to see some of those stories come through. Uh, but outside of that, over the last two years, we've broadened our um, horizons to start telling the story around um, sustainability, so wider sustainability measures. And so upskilled ourselves and um, spoken. Some of our suppliers who are experts in the field helped us define um, a piece of software that's just gone to market this year that would help a company um, use um, the software to to basically create a sustainability plan and then look for ways they can do better and actually tell their story. So mm-hmm. that story piece will uh, weaves in nicely into what upstream is like procurement. So what do you need to buy and who do you need to use? And then our software in the future will become and here's all the reporting and here's all the storytelling of all the good you're doing and it's broader, it's it's waste, it's carbon, it's um, social procurement, it's, it's, yeah, it's the story you want to show and say, hey, look, we're doing good, here's the evidence of it. Mm. So we're pretty excited about that. It's in its new stage. Um, but, yeah, uh, yeah, watch us. Yeah. yeah, that's great. Well, it's really fun to have been on the journey with you, and mm. I want to give a special shout-out to James Harris, who mm. isn't here. I usually interview one person rather than two sure. people just because I like to hear one voice and a story but I want to acknowledge him because mm. I know every meeting we've had he's always mm. been there as mm. well and I know he's been a big part of it mm. so um, yeah it's really cool what you guys yeah. are building and I know you got a team and mm. you know it's always exciting to think of what the future could hold and I think anything that's a bit innovative out of the box like that's what we need to encourage mm. we need startups that aren't just focused on 100x returns and mm. becoming the next Facebook Mm. but startups that are actually focused on social good and return. And I love the word you used before, you know, procurement sounds Mm. kind of boring, but then Mm. you think about it like we need to buy paper anyway. Mm. Which paper should we buy? And it's really kind of empowering and giving both for consumers and also businesses to think through like, you know, like we're recording this in our office looking around. Mm. There's chairs, there's a desk, you know, there's um, books. Mm. All of these things are potential. If you choose where you're getting it from, mm. it's actually going to have impact. Mm. So. Yeah, now you're becoming me. I, I walk into offices all the time and go, oh, merchandise pens, yeah. carpet cleaning probably once a year. There's windows, so that must be window cleaning once a year. Yeah. Like you're just on. And, and I think for me, yep, people don't buy what people, you know, like people don't buy what you're selling. They buy often story and and vision and so for us if people get it then they're willing to engage and and we'll do the work to actually look at quotes and that sort of thing so for me for me the storytelling is do you believe in our mission and what we're trying to do for young people do you believe that you know and what upstream's done and where it's going to go do you want to journey with us Mm -hmm. and then what's your role to play how can you help us get that story out there do you what type of spending do you have in your own basket you know and, and is that you're in a position where you do have procurement power, where you go, hey, I'm a manager, I can make some of these decisions. Mm. Or do you own your company? Now you're, you're in a uh, you know, really good position. Um, or is it just at home where you're like, yep, there's some stuff I could use. We need to get a heat pump cleaned. Yeah. Who yep. are we going to use? <laughs> need a plumber, need a yeah, builder. Yep. Yeah. So we've got 120 suppliers. Um, and it's always growing, but our trustees are pretty careful about onboarding only suppliers that really fit that culture. Mm. They bought in 
purpose first, not profit. So purpose over profit. You know, keen to give a, um, a generous percentage if we do bring you a lead at that converts to a sale. Mm-hmm. And are prepared to be honourable with that client because the last thing I want to do is recommend someone that lets me down. So, mm. um, yeah, so being really careful to onboard and, um, um, yeah, find really cool suppliers. Yeah, that's great. Well, we probably can't give a shout out to all 120 <laughs> suppliers. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, the trustees, though, who are they? Yeah, so we've got um, so our charitable foundation, uh, which owns Upstream, we've got five five trustees. Um, uh, Jim Veach, who managed to join our board right at the start, mm-hmm. is ex CEO of um, Countdown. Um, so we managed to get him on our board, and he's um, uh, director on Verkirk's Meet. So there's some pretty cool stuff that he's done. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, but he's just real passionate about young people and, and a lot of experience. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I know him as well. He's a really uh, cool go. guy. Yeah. yeah, yeah, he's cool. Um, recently had uh, Andrew Button join, so ex partner of um, Deloitte. Yeah, um, here in Christchurch. Um, Natasha Joubert, she's our treasurer. She runs a chartered accountant business herself and uh, well-experienced um, in charitable trusts, um, but just really passionate about young people as well. Mm-hmm. Kayla Verco is an um, ex-youth worker, heavily involved in young people and well-experienced, I guess, and knowing the need, um, but also is quite well involved in, at Datacom here in Christchurch. So comes from that sales background, um, so often speaks into that. And then myself and James Harris um, are on the board as well, yeah. um, representing that. So Yeah, great. Yeah. Well, a shout out to all of them for the yeah. work that goes on behind the scenes. <laughs> yeah, no, they're awesome. Yeah. Eh? Dedicate yeah. their time. So that's cool. Well, it's been great to have you on the show. I really appreciated the fact that we could start with your own history. You know, mm. Hornby. It was interesting hearing that um, story of your own background and the differences that you felt when you went to St Andrews and mm. then when you went to the cricket club. And and I can see um, the power of a youth worker mm. and the, f- the fact that that person was like a stake and keeping you safe. And then that's why I love doing these long form mm. podcasts. Cause then mm. you can see the flow of like, oh, okay, well it does make sense that he mm. became a youth worker. Mm. But then also I love how you've been able to be entrepreneurial with that because I think a lot of people within charity world would simply say, as you were told, we'll go write more grant applications mm just ask for more money mm. and actually sometimes you do need to flip things on their head and, yeah. and question the system and then you, that's when you get innovation because mm. it's like why do we do it that way you know mm. ask the seven whys Absolutely. why 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 yeah. <laughs> um, so that's been really cool to hear and I'm yeah, cool. just so happy to know that you know a quarter of a million today mm. Mm. Um, and because so much has been given recently that is mm. promising for the future right because it yeah. is like that you know the the connections and the relationships will be compounding over mm. time mm. rather than you know dwindling <laughs> mm. so yeah. yeah i'll leave you with a final picture was when i in my research was thinking about how we can do fundraising better for charities mm-hmm. there's a wee picture or some research that talked about um uh, the top 50 companies in new zealand on the nzx so these are big ones basically uh, giving charitable trusts 0.007% of their pre-tax profit. So basically $700 for every million they're giving charitable trusts. And the second stat I found was 91% of all money in New Zealand or philanthropy is going to 9% of the biggest charities. So here's 
us as a little charity, local, basically not much shot of getting all the really big marketing money, the ones that have got New Zealand-wide clout and that sort of thing. So we're really not going to tap into big corporate giving. Um, but also the fact that we're really then fighting for $700 of a million dollars. Mm. When I flipped that around, my question was, what are they spending with 909900 <laughs> Basically, I was like, let's go after the bigger piece of that pie. Let's not go after 700 bucks. Let's go after what's million times 700, you know. Mm. They're spending it on things like cleaning, cleaning products, you know, window cleaners. There's parts of the budget, the operational budget, that is a real opportunity that we need to go after. So to me, I think once I got that concept, I was like, right, game on. Mm. And um, it means that we can really benefit those small to medium charities that often don't have the same clout, same privilege, but are doing amazing work. Let us be upstream, floating money down and going, hey, look, there's no retape here. Like, just keep doing what you're doing and we'll just feed money back. Mm. Um, And so that's kind of the picture that drives me going, like, everyone's got... Um, a big part of the pie that I want to talk about. Yeah, so. yeah, that's great. Lovely picture to end with. And yeah, thank you for coming on the show. I know that you've actually listened to Seeds Podcast yeah. before, right, which, is, which yep. is awesome because you kind of knew what the format would be and I didn't have to explain much. So yeah. it's great to have a listener who's now on the show. Mm. Um, and yeah, just really appreciate all the work that you're doing and the team's doing. And mm. Um, thank you for taking the time out. I know you got lots of meetings, but mm. thanks for coming in and, and having a chat with me and sharing about the journey. Yeah, no, I really appreciate it. And shout out to you. I think a pivotal time where um, having a lawyer make sure that we were going to set this up really well and understanding our heart, what we're trying to do, the belief as well. I think the belief in, hey, look, this is not just a, it is a crazy idea, but it's an idea that, okay, but we need to do this well. We need to ask the critical questions in setup so that you don't hamstring yourself down the down the track mm. or you don't regret anything that possibly we should have asked right at the start. Mm. So having yourself five years ago set us up um, was pivotal to actually protecting some of the things that we've actually still held on to. Mm. Um, and so I just encourage anyone in the position of sort of startup phase or thinking about an idea, like that's the time where you really need to know someone with experience in mm. social enterprise space, um, charitable business space. It is an interesting wedge in New Zealand. Mm. Uh, you're not a full profit, you're not a full charity. And, and I think for me, having someone like yourself being pivotal with asking those right questions, thinking about the future when I didn't know what it was, it was going to look like. So yeah. I want to shout out to you and um, say thanks. Yeah, yeah, no, no worries. Yeah, well, lots of shout outs on this episode. Yeah. But um, thanks so much for coming in and um, we'll watch the journey continue. Sounds good. Well, I do hope you enjoyed that conversation with Mitch. I really appreciated his vulnerability and willingness to talk about his life, his struggles, what it is he does today, but most importantly, what is it that motivates him? If the business model sounds intriguing, then I'm sure he would welcome a conversation so that you can find out more. And don't forget, there's like 350 other episodes in the back catalog, so why not check out some of those as well? Until next time, kakite ano!